I promise we're going to get to the book here in just a second, oh, but sure. I, I'd love to get more insight into um, an, a brilliant article you wrote recently in March um, that really blew up on the internet. It was entitled, uh, What's Digital Blackface and oh, Why? Yeah. Why is it wrong when white people use it? Um, did, you know, we'll get to the depth of the article in a second, but did you expect this article to create such no. an enormous conversation? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters. Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout-out to our annual sponsor, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is John Blake. He's an award-winning journalist and senior writer at CNN. His focus is the intersection of race, religion, and politics. He now has a new book, More Than I Imagined. John, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having me. So when, when your publisher uh, reached out to me, I, I didn't even have to take a look to see that uh, you had a new book to make the decision uh, because I've been reading your work for years. I was telling you a little bit about this before we start recording. Uh, my email response to Kelly Hughes was an emphatic, absolutely, and I'm I'm pretty sure it came in about 20 seconds after her email came in my inbox. You, you've you been writing so brilliantly on race and religion and politics. Looking back, why do you think you chose um, these areas to focus on? I think because those areas, those were subjects I wrestled with uh, as soon as I can, as early as like three and four or five years old. My 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 biography is really intertwined with questions about race and faith. So a quick thing. Um, so I am the what I talk about in the memoir is that I am the son of a black man and a white woman, which is not that unusual today. But when I was born in the mid 1960s, interracial marriage was illegal and the my white relatives disowned me at birth. So when I grew up. Um, uh, I didn't know anything about my mom or anything. All I was told was that your mother's name is Shirley. She's white and her family hates black people. So I didn't know who she was. I didn't know she was alive. I didn't know what she looked like, the color of her eyes, you know, her hair. So I grew up wanting to know why this whole side of myself, this white family wanted nothing to do with me, including my mom. And I grew up in an all black neighborhood, inner city neighborhood in Baltimore where everybody 
seemed to really dislike white people. So I was wrestling with these questions about race, even as a kid. And as I mentioned in my book, as I grew up, I became what I call a closeted biracial person. I didn't tell anybody that my mom was white because in my neighborhood, you could get your butt kicked. And when I had my school forms, I would mark her, her race as black. And then suddenly when I'm 17 and I have to go to college and I, I think all this is behind me, my mom's probably dead. Her family doesn't want anything to do with me. My father just comes to me one day and he just drops the bomb and he says, hey, do you want to meet your mom? And that was the beginning of a journey when I really began to wrestle with these questions. So to answer your question, where I grew up, the circumstances of my family, I had no choice to wrestle with these questions because they were almost like questions not just of like abstract questions, but they were questions about survival. Who am I? Where do I belong? Yeah. Just in the last few weeks, you, you've written on uh, the great Harry Belafonte, the mm -hmm. expulsion and special appointment of the two Tennessee state representatives, the alternative evangelical Jimmy Carter, an in-depth look at the work of uh, Reverend William Barber against white Christian nationalism just all in a, you know, in a day's work, right? You know, so what is yeah, your processes yeah. of, uh, what's your process of, of picking what you want to write about? A lot of times I, I feel like the stories I pick aren't as good as the stories that kind of pick me. And what I mean, the stories that pick me is that uh, a thought will come to me like, wow, I want, somebody should say something about that, or I want to read something about that, but nobody said anything about that. Usually there, it becomes like a little still voice, a little hunch that I have that just kind of pops into my head. It could be three or four o'clock in the morning, or it could just be walking around, but it's something that just comes to me. I find that when I'm like laboring, trying to think of a story idea, those are ideas aren't as interesting. So I just try to write stories that kind of come to me and answer questions that I naturally have. I promise we're going to get to the book here in just a second, oh, but sure. I'd love to get more insight into, um, an, a brilliant article you wrote recently in March um, that really blew up on the internet is entitled uh, what's digital blackface and oh, why, yeah. <laughs> why is it wrong when white people use it? Um, did, you know, we'll get to the depth of the article in a second, but did you expect this article to create such no. an enormous conversation? No, I was stunned. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I mean, because my editor came to me, his name is Brandon Griggs. And he said, Hey, I want you to do something with digital blackface. I said, people have been writing that about that for since 2017. Everybody knows about it. Shows you how smart I was. I mean, I, I just thought it would come out, it would sink. And it just, I could not believe it. And I have, I've been thinking about it. Like, why did that, why did that story blow up? And I have, a, I have a theory. First of all, there's this whole conservative media, media ecosystem that's just devoted to outrage. So they look for the latest kind of racial racially provocative article, and they'll just take it and run with it. People won't even read it, but it becomes a thing. And I think that was part of it. it I, I gave them something to play with, you know, this subject. But I think secondly, I think there is a segment of, segment of white America who says, I will never be shamed about racism anymore. I am so tired of Black people trying to make me feel guilty about racism. What, I can't even use a Black GIF now? Now I'm a racist? So I think it hit that, and they misunderstood what I was saying. I wasn't saying anytime a white person uses a Black person in a GIF or some kind of Elon, uh, online communication that you're being racist. I'm saying sometimes you can be doing it. You could be perpetuating stereotypes, so you should think about it. But it became, nah, this CNN writer says you're racist if you use a 
a gif of RuPaul. You know, that's what it became. So that's my theory about why that blew up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm right with you because I, um, you know, I'm not ashamed to confess that when your work comes out, I'm reading it <laughs> you know, as quickly as possible. And when I started to see the conversation taking place online, you know, in the vitriol that, you know, is the latest, you know, from, from, um, you know, white people who were so scared to confront uh, racism they don't recognize. And I think that's what it is. It's this this sense of exhaustion. Like, this is, okay, I've, I've come with you this far, but right. really this is one more thing, you know, that, yes. that we have to, but you raise a, a really, I mean, one of the final quotes from the book, you, or from the article you wrote, um, if you're a white person who's contemplating using a hold my wig gif, um, you should consider the advice Jackson offers to her teenage Vogue essays on white people. Um, and, and you go into this in-depth piece of, of asking us to consider, you know, what is the intent behind it? And could there be something more behind it? And, you know, what, what you've conveyed in this article is the complexity of racism in unseen ways by white Americans. And, and for many, it's uncomfortable. But for others, it's refreshing to be challenged to see life through the eyes of our, our black neighbors. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't get the vitriol, but it was a brilliant article. Well, thank you. You know, but, you know, you talk about white people being challenged to think about race in ways that make them feel uncomfortable, how some might resent it. But to be black, that's the way you think 24-7. We all, you know, there's a guy named W.B. Du Bois who talks about to be black, you have to have double consciousness. We constantly have to think about race, how it impacts white people, what we do, because if we make the wrong move, we could get killed. We say the wrong thing, we could get fired. So so when, when there are white people who say, I just don't want to think about race, I'm saying, welcome to my world. This is how we've lived 24-7, where we have to walk tiptoe stance, making sure we don't say or do the right thing. So, yeah. Well, let's jump to the book because there's there's so much to unpack here. Yeah, you have a new book, um, more than I imagined. This is a, a memoir about your experience as a black man growing up in Baltimore with a white mother that left in early in your childhood. Um, why now? What, what what about this moment within your work and what's going on in our communities compelled you to to write your your story now? I think one of the reasons I wrote it now. I mean, there are many reasons people write a book. Part of it is you're at a, when you're dealing with the memoir, you're at a part of your life where you feel like you have some kind of handle on these big issues. But I think one of the big reasons is that I first got this idea to write this memoir when I went back and covered the Freddie Gray uh, riot slash uprising slash rebellion, whatever you want to call it. And this is a huge, uh, these violent protests that occurred in 2015 when a black man died in police custody. And it just, my whole neighborhood went into up in flames. So I'm going back to my neighborhood. I'm seeing National Guardsmen, media from all over the country covering, you know, what's happening in my country, in my um, neighborhood. And I was struck by this contrast. I'm saying my neighborhood is coming apart because of racism, but my family, my white and black relatives are coming together despite racism. And I'm beginning to think, you know, we write all these stories about race, and I include myself in that. And we're always talking about what doesn't work. It's starting to work in my life. I'm, I am reconciling with white members of my family that I never thought would come, I would call family. You know, these are people called my father the N-word, who disowned me at birth, uh, who assaulted my father, called the police on him, 
called me a zebra child, all these things. And growing up in a kind of environment where I grew up, where there was so much hostility toward white people, for me to able to kind of find this way to connect with them, I was thinking to myself, that's the story I want to read. And I was like, you should write that because you're living the type of story you want to read. So that's when I really began to say, I should share this story because I think we need more stories like that. Because I, I, I don't know, I feel like, Andy, I feel like we're at this dangerous place in this country where a lot of people have given up on giving, getting past our racial divisions. I think there's this sense of fatalism and pessimism that has sunk in. You know, there was this hope that after Obama was elected, uh, and then that was followed by all this racial division. I just feel like people feel like, you know, racism is part of being a human being, you know, just inherent in humans, and we can't get past it. And I feel like we have to tell stories, not just give information or chide people, but we have to tell stories that show people, no, that's not true. This is something we can transcend. In fact, we have to transcend it if we don't want this country to come apart. Context matters, and you've alluded to this a couple of times in our conversation so far. You emphasize the fact that you grew up in West Baltimore. From yeah. a, for those that maybe aren't familiar, kind of contextually, what you mean by that? Why why is that a significant part um, of this story? West Baltimore is significant because how can I say? I'll say it two ways. Uh, the the neighborhood I grew up in isn't just any neighborhood; it's a symbol. It's a symbol of black anger. It's a symbol of how intractable racism in this country. And it's become a symbol because of different things that have happened in that place. One is, uh, it was a scene of, uh, like I said, this huge race up, uprising rebellion in 2015. It's like saying Watts. You know, when you think Watts, you think, oh yeah, they had that big ride in the sixties. So that's part of the reason people know about it. Two, there was this really well-known series called The Wire on HBO that a lot of people watched. And it's one of the most grim, unsparing portraits of racism and violence that you'll ever see on TV. That was literally set in my backyard. So that's where I grew up. So I grew up in these, this place where you, were, you would never expect uh, a story about racial reconciliation to take place because it's just, just it's so associated with uh, black anger and hostility. As I said in my book, when you grow up in such a place, you can't let white people, you can't let people know that your mom is white. So I grew up as kind of what I call a closeted biracial person. I just wouldn't let anyone know. So that's the context that I come from. And not to get too biblical, because this is, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I remember reading about Jesus where he came from in, in Nazareth and Galilee. And I read that Galilee was like the hotbed of the revolutionary, revolutionaries, like all those people who wanted like down with Rome, they came from Galilee. So West Baltimore was like Galilee. It was the place of anger, revolution, hostility toward whites. And, her, and here I am growing up there knowing that my mom is white and her family doesn't want anything to do with me. So that was really difficult as a kid to deal with. All right, small side question since you raised the, the point about the wire. Okay. Uh, thoughts on you know, the the portrayed Baltimore accent yeah. and thoughts on British actors portraying West Baltimore. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, they, 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 um, the little details about West Baltimore, they got down stone cold. The little slang terms, the accents, um, they got that really well, very well. It's, it was so strange, like even the nicknames, like Weebay, 
I knew I knew a wee bay. I mean, even, <laughs> even you know, um, all the nicknames, um, the way people talked. I think they got that down. And as far as British actors, I don't have any problem with them between American actors. I know people complain about that. I love BBC, by the way. I think British like crime dramas are like great. And their actors, are, their actors to me look like regular human beings. They don't look like Hollywood actors that go to the gym and all that. So anyway, I like that. But I will say this about The Wire. Uh, I think in some ways it, it missed something about West Baltimore that I try to convey in my book. And that is that there was hope. And that in fact, the black church was a powerful institution. If you look at The Wire, they examined all these different facets of black life in Baltimore, like the school system, uh, crime, but they never really looked at the black church. And the black church is very key. The black church helped me as a kid get through that stuff I was dealing with. There are two critical questions in the book. Uh, where is my mother and where do I belong? And I want to focus in on each of these questions. So that first question, where is my mother, has so many implications. We'll, we'll obviously get to the sociological implications of it here in just a moment. But from a psychological standpoint, Knowing you wrote an entire book dedicated to this question, um, how do you think that question impacted your childhood? Mm, that's a happy question. Um, I think uh, even if you don't, even if you aren't drawn to stories about race, my hope is that people will be drawn to what I call the universal aspect of the story. And that is every kid wants to feel like they're loved and that they belong. And when I didn't have my mom around, when I couldn't see her, I didn't know what she looked like. I didn't know why she disappeared. No one talked about her. As a kid, that made me feel like nobody wanted me. Add to that, that I spent most of my childhood in a foster home. That only deepened that feeling of not being wanted and, and, and where's my mom? So I think it impacted me that way, just something I had to wrestle with. But one of the things that really helped me uh, is something one of my relatives told me. He said, you know, sometimes all you need is one person to believe in you. And I had that. And I had an aunt in my family that watched me during the weekend. And she kind of stepped into that void that was left by my mom. And she became the surrogate mom who really got me into reading books and helped me believe in myself. But yeah, uh, that was a huge void in my life. I, I said in a book that I felt like I came into the world with half of my identity amputated. You know, I had this whole side of myself that I knew nothing about. No pictures, nobody talked to me, nobody explained anything. So that was a huge hurdle to uh, deal with. The question about your mother and her whiteness obviously affected mm -hmm. your social and familial interactions. You wrote, I couldn't seem to escape whiteness no matter how hard I tried. From, yeah. from a familial standpoint, and you talked about this kind of in your opening statement, it seems as though you and your brother Pat were were maybe seen and treated differently. Is, is is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, it might seem odd now because uh, Black people are, like 75% of Black people I, I've read are, are racially mixed. So we there's a wide variety of appearances, skin textures, colors, facial features that are just commonplace in Black people. People. So if someone saw me walking down the street or say if they saw Obama or Jordan Peele, they wouldn't necessarily assume that their mom is white. In my world that I grew up in West Baltimore, just being having a fair complexion, light skin, that was bad. Just any hint of whiteness was bad. So because of that, because we had this very dark father 
And we had these very light boys walking with him through the neighborhood with our light skin and a certain texture of hair. We were automatically, I mean, people just, a lot of people just automatically hated us. Any hint of whiteness. So yes, we had to deal with racism, not just from the white family members, but we also had to deal uh, from racism from black people who would just want to fight us or attack us. My brother, for example, when he was about 12 years old, was just walking home from school by the railroad tracks and a group of boys called him a honky and chased him home, hit him on the head with rocks just because he was, and he came home bleeding just because he was light-skinned. So I was very familiar about that type of racial hatred coming up from white and black. But yeah, it's 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 hard to describe people um, when you grow up in such a world, nobody tells you like hate white people. You just absorb it. It's what you see. I saw white police officers beat unarmed black women in front of my face. And when you see these things and you hear it, uh, it, it just seeps into your pores. I don't know if I answered your question. No, no. I mean, we're, I'm going to take that a little further. You know, layer within the complexities okay. of this book are is your experience as a black man growing up in Baltimore. And you wrote about police brutality towards black people and fear that your father would be attacked by them and yeah. carried away. Um, yeah. You wrote this very telling line. Hatred of white people was like humidity in my world. Yes. I couldn't help but breathe it in. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. I was uh, reading a book about racism by one of my favorite writers. He's a psychologist named Gordon Allport. He wrote this classic book on racism called The Nature of Prejudice. And he said that most racism is caught rather than taught. And what it means is you grow, you grow up in an environment. And like I said, no one tells you you should think this way. You just absorb it, how people talk, like how people act. Um, I just heard black people talk about white people uh, with so much anger all the time. I heard black people talk about how they were treated in the jaws by white people. I heard a pastor in church stay from the pulpit. You can't trust in white folks. And all the black folks kept on saying amen in the church. You you see the, pro, you see the police brutality. Uh, you see white police officers coming in and just mistreating people. Um, where I grew up, I would, it was very common when I would go to sleep at night where the police helicopters would fly above our house and the searchlights would come in our bedroom. And I would look out in the backyard and I see people running from cops. And so you just had this, this in, that, in that kind of world, it's very easy to absorb these, uh, these assumptions about white people. And I think this is key. It's because I didn't see any white people that I, I could develop these stereotypes. You know, if I had friends, if I saw white people who had contact with my white family members, it would be different. But when you have racial segregation, it creates all these conditions for racial prejudice. During my entire time in high school, I mean, in public school, from Head Start to high school, I only saw one white student. One white student. That's it. And that's not healthy. That's not healthy for a multiracial democracy when people live like that. So that that was... When you grow up in such an environment, you know, that's how you think. And you, and then if somebody had came to me in, at 17 or 16 and said, you know, not all white people are bad and, and you're thinking in a racist ways, I, I I don't think I would have understood what they were saying. It would have, I was just so wrapped up in that world. I, if you would have told me I was thinking in a racist way, I, I thought I would think you were just saying nonsense. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. 
These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You, uh, you finally met your mother. How, how old were you? 17. Yeah. You wrote, um, as she hugged Pat, your, your brother, I stepped back to look at my mom for the first time I could remember. I opened my mouth to say something, but no words came out. I tried to take in what I was seeing. Tell us about that that first experience of of meeting your mother. That was uh that was a a meeting that took me decades and decades to digest because it was so shocking on so many different levels. First of all, the way it came about, nobody prepared no one in my family prepared me. My father just called me into his room one day and said, "Hey, do you want to meet your mom?" And then when we we were driven out there to meet my mom, um, we were driven into this really depressing looking red brick building that looked like it was a set from the Shawshank Redemption. And when we went went into this waiting area and she came out, that's when it began to hit me where I stood. I met her in a mental institution. She was a patient. She had severe form of of schizophrenia. And... um, it 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 just blew me away. It it just uh that was one of the big reasons she had no contact with us because she was institutionalized by her father after giving birth to me and my brother. And so that was just shocking. But I tell you what it what it did to me and what's something I immediately recognized when I saw her. Before I met her, I had this image of white people that no white person could understand what it meant to be black to suffer, to be looked down upon, to be treated with contempt. But when I went into that room and that mental institution and I saw my mom come out and I could hear people moaning and pain in the background in these distant corridors. I could hear other people like erupted in hysterical laughter. You could feel the despair in that place. And I realized that she had been living in this place away from her children that she had given birth to for most of her life. I thought to myself, wow, all these assumptions I had about white people were wrong. She shattered that assumption. Like, this is somebody, I like. I thought, I've never seen a Black person suffer like that. So what that meeting did for me initially, besides, like, family, I meet my mom, it started to widen, it started to create empathy for white people for the first time in my life. I began to see them as human beings and not as this category of people that hurt me. Yeah, I think the book is phenomenal, but that mm-hmm. chapter alone, should win an award because I found myself caught in the emotion of the experience. Um, and you so brilliantly captured it. Um, in this first encounter you wrote, I clenched my jaw and first my lips. This is so unfair. I thought nobody prepared us. What was I supposed to feel? Was I supposed to call her mom, cry out in joy? How could I feel anything for someone I had never met? Take us a little deeper into kind of the emotional complexities of, 
not only, you know, being raised and experiencing what you've experienced growing up, but then seeing your mother for the first time and, and all that being compounded in this moment? Well, as I think about it, uh, I don't like using this word because sometimes I feel like it's overused, but it was a very traumatic event. And what I was told by people, they, they told me, they said, when you write this memoir, you will remember things that you had repressed or blocked out. I'm like, oh, no, that's not going to happen. But that is true. And there was a lot about that first meeting with my mom that I blocked out because it was just too much. I mean, it's like everything unfolded in slow motion. It was just too much. It was like meeting my mom, realizing that she's severely mental, mentally ill, realize that she's been living in this place and no one telling us. Um, there was just so much I blocked out. And I just felt like so much of that day was a blur. And and in fact, my brother who was with me, he's my younger brother. He's a, we're not even a year apart, so we're very close. We didn't even talk about that meeting for years because we didn't want to revisit it. And the thing about it too, that was so difficult. When I met my mom, I had this hope that she could be my mom, meaning that I could talk to her about certain things that she could kind of take care of me. But as soon as I met her, I realized that I had to become part of her caretaker. So at 17, 18, I realized I had to take care of my mom. I had to come visit her. I couldn't talk to her about certain things. So it's almost like I was catapulted into the caregiver's role immediately before she, before I ever experienced being cared by her. So that was difficult too. But just seeing her in that condition, though, it it it, it created just tremendous like sympathy for my part. And I was like, I got to do everything I can to make things better for her. Yeah. Well, well done. I cried reading that chapter, by the way. So <laughs> yeah, it was very difficult. I, yeah. I I was and I was thinking as I was experiencing this chapter, it was like as difficult as it is for me to read it. It's like a you know magnified by a gazillion of how much it was like experiencing and then writing yourself. Um, but I think you. I mean, you so. You, you brought us into, again, the complexity of, of what your experience has been. Um, but let me, let me switch gears for just a second. I, I giggle when I read this portion of the book um, um, because it captured my childhood experience. You said Sunday morning worship was bad, bad oh, as yeah. boring, achingly dull. Uh, my mood during services shifted between boredom, confusion, and contempt. I thought people were getting happy, were acting like buffoons. When I was a kid, I thought Reverend Churn shouted more when people didn't get in, uh, didn't put enough in the offering plate. I tuned him out by placing history books in my lap and pretending I was consulting scriptures while he preached. Um, I chuckled so much because that was my childhood experience really? in church, and the fact that I've gone into you know vocational ministry <laughs> makes it even worse. But um, talk to us about the the role of faith in, in your upbringing. Well, I have so much fun writing that because that was that was uh, that was some childhood trauma I could easily relive. Um, so yeah, um, the Black Church is a huge institution in West Baltimore, and and uh, the, it has helped us. It helped me get through a lot, but. You know, as a kid, I, I, I'm not thinking this is good for me because my aunt made me go to these church services. And in the Black church service, I don't know about other traditions or the CBF, but you don't get in there and get out in an hour and a half. Uh-uh. <laughs> if you think you're going to do that, you got something else. We, we would be in there from like, oh, Sunday school, like nine in the morning to like three in the afternoon. In fact, I remember as a kid, there was a big clock on the wall. 
in the back of the church, I would turn around and look at the clock. I felt like time was moving back, <laughs> you know, like it was just slowing down. It was just so dull for me. However, there were parts of the black church experience that I experienced that would help me later on. And, and it was good for me to see that. Um, and one of the lines I, I put in the, um, service, in, the, in the book is that for black people, we couldn't, in my neighborhood, we couldn't afford therapy. So church was our catharsis. So there was always this outletting of emotion, people getting happy, shouting. The music was great. And I love testimony time when people will get up at random and talk about their problems in the most intimate detail. I do remember that. And that was very powerful. And so, but that's for church. It was, it, it did help me later on, but at the time it was, it was tough as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> you can relate. Yeah, well, you know, and also I, a, a friend of mine was a, a pastor of a, um, a black church in, in Brooklyn. He's, he's now since retired. Um, and he invited me to preach one Sunday there, you know, and I, I preached typical kind of, yeah, I, I, you know, typical, you know, my experience, 20, 25 minutes, you know, so I finished mm -hmm. preaching. And he kind of winked at me and got up and preached for 45 minutes after I got done. And I talked to him afterwards. He said, yeah, you just didn't preach long enough. Uh, and the other funny thing about that experience was uh, we passed the offering plates around once. And he got up and he goes, no, 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 no. Uh -uh. Says, we're going to pass that around again. And we'll keep passing around until we get what we're supposed to get today. Yes. <laughs> I, well, I told you, my, my childhood pastor, I would go outside. He had a Rolls Royce with a water fountain in it. I remember that. I don't remember his service or the good he did, but but yeah, I mean, uh, offerings were like three or four. Um, but I wonder when you when you spoke before a black congregation, did they respond to what you were saying? Did you experience that call and response? Oh, absolutely. And it's one like? of those things. Uh, you know, I I, I think because um, because I had the privilege of of experiencing a lot of different church traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, it, I had, I had, I had witnessed it before, but not been a part of it before in the sense of being the recipient of that, that yeah. kind of tall back callback kind of, kind of piece. And, um, you know, it's, it's that delicate balance of like, how do I respond, but how do I make sure I'm not responding in a way that, uh, is, in, is inappropriate, you know, it's, it's a rhythm. And I mean, it's a different, it's a different feel altogether. And you kind of have to learn, learn how to drive that way of preaching, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, the other aspect, you know, while you were at Howard University, faith took this drastic shift for you. Yes. You write about experiencing as transformative and inclusive and interracial. But then you talk about that your burning passion of faith began to collide with um, yes. the bitter regions of your heart. How, how has your faith shaped the way that you've approached your work over these uh, last decades? Um, my faith keeps me from the despair that I sometimes feel like I'm approaching as a journalist who has covered race in this country for the past 25 years, because I've covered some of the, the most painful racial stories in this country's history. I mean, I covered the Rodney King riot. That's, that's how old I am. I've seen all these uh, examples of how people come apart because of race, but I also have this experience in my private life going to all these interracial churches, of seeing how people can come together and transcend these differences uh, uh, over race. And one of the things I find curious now for me is that, for example, I've written a little bit about white Christian nationalism, you know, people are talking about it, but conservative white Christian evangelicals 
were key for me. They were key for my conversion. There were people who really helped me out, people I admired, and people who really helped me become a Christian. Because when I was in college, when this guy came to my dorm room and wanted to talk about Jesus, when people talked about the cross and Jesus and salvation and all this theological stuff, that meant nothing to me. But when I went to a church and I saw white, black, and brown people hug one another, call each other sister and brother, then go to their homes after Sunday, eat dinner, pray together, that was the thing that stood out to me. That was the thing that really converted me. One of the most powerful quotes from the book, um, you're, I used to think that if more white people had more information, yes. if you showed them enough videos of unarmed black people harassed and killed, if you cited enough history and facts about racism, they would change. But facts don't change people. Relationships yes. do. Yes. Take us a little deeper there. Yeah, I'm glad you, you keyed on that because that was really important for me to say. Um, that comes from my experience of writing about race for so many years. I've I've covered so many racial reckonings. The one that we had with George Floyd was one of many I covered. And they all followed the same pattern. There would be some kind of uh there would be some kind of video incident that would be caught and white white America would be outraged. But then that outrage would fade. And then we would return to the status quo. And there came a point where I thought, you know. We have all these videos out now. We have all these brilliant books on racism. With the internet, you can learn anything you want. But that's not changing people. I'm like, what really changes people? And then I looked at my own life. I was like, what, what changed me? What changed me more than anything was meeting these white members of my family who showed me, yes, that they could act in racist ways, but they were more than that. And that they could love, that they could grow past that. That changed me. What changed me going to those interracial churches and meeting conservative white evangelical Christians who treated me beautifully. And so when I thought about that, I thought, you know, in the last couple of years, I think we put too much emphasis on how information and facts can change people, because I don't think they do, that we should instead put more emphasis on creating these conditions so we can have interracial relationships, interracial communities where you create these conditions for people to see their humanity. And that's why I wrote that. I, I really believe that facts don't change people, relationships do. And I think a lot of people in the movement, a lot of people anti-racist have forgotten that. So let's go right there. How, how do we how do we cultivate relationships like this when our communities seem seem so divided? And segregated. It's a it's yeah. a real it's a real challenge. And I mean, like for example, if I'm saying we need more interracial communities. And if you're a white Christian in Iowa and you're living around, you know, all white community, how do you do that? Um, I, I, I would answer two ways how we create those conditions. I think one is churches have to understand there's a difference between a racially mixed church and an integrated church, a racially integrated. And I've been in both. A racially mixed church is where you have people of different races sitting in the pews. They share pews. A racially integrated church is where you have people, different races, not only sharing pews, but sharing power. So a lot of these uh, racially, mi uh, racially mixed churches I've gone to that didn't work that as well. I was encouraged to be there as a black person, but all the leadership was white. All the hymns and service were like from a European tradition. There was nothing in the service that would acknowledge my culture or my past. So to answer your question, I think 
one of the things the churches can do is to be try to become more racially integrated and share power. And, and that's really difficult because our church I went to that did that, it was a difficult process. But I think that that's part of it. I'll give you an example. I'll tell you a quick story of how you don't do it. My brother went to this racially mixed church in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was well known as being the place where everybody gets together. We, we don't, we've transcended race. And they had a black church member who was a dark, large black man who sat in the front row. And when the pastor would preach, he would get up and shout and go hallelujah. And he would just run, kind of run around the church. And in the black church tradition, that is a sign of honor that you would react to a pastor like that. But in this particular white church tradition, they didn't like it. So they told him to leave the church and he left. He, he was brokenhearted. They could accept a black person in the pews, but they couldn't accept his culture. And a lot of churches do that in different ways where they send a signal that you, we want you here as a black or brown person, but we don't want you here too much. Don't bring your whole self here. So I think that's one. I think two, how we create these conditions where we can, you know, we can have relationships is that there's this guy named Gordon Allport, Allport that I mentioned earlier, and he wrote this book called The Nature of Prejudice. And he was trying to figure out how do you change people's racial attitudes? And he came apart, came across this kind of paradox. He says, when you get groups together to talk about race, that's okay. That has limited value, but that doesn't really change people. He said, however, when you get different groups of races together for a larger purpose, to, to, to work towards some larger common goal, that's when you create conditions to really change people's racial attitudes. Now that sounds abstract, but I will, I will describe it this way. You remember that movie, Remember the Titans? You ever see that movie? Okay. Yeah. That's the plot that you see in a lot of sports movies where you have a sports team that's divided by race, black and white, they can't get along. But once they get together to try to win a championship, they see each other's common humanity. That's what he's talking about. And I think what I mean by that is that I think in this country, we have to create conditions where we can have people coming together for something other than talking about race. For example, people have talking about created a, a national service program. You know, if you remember during the Great Depression, there was something called the Civilian Conservation Corps, where you get all these young men who are unemployed together to talk to work, and they would do things like work in the forest, repair roads. But what if you had a national service program in this country where we tell young people we'll pay for you know two three years in college if you come together and you work on some kind of issue that can improve the country but you would have all these different people different races different classes different political beliefs coming together for some common goal that would do a tremendous amount to going toward reducing racial prejudice and i think we have to do things like that um that's why the military, for example, is the, is the most integrated institution. They don't talk about race all the time. They get people together for a larger purpose, different people, different backgrounds. And in doing so, people see that shared humanity. I think the church is like that. When I went into those interracial churches and I met all those different white people, we weren't talking about race all the time. We had a larger kind of purpose as Christians, and that created those conditions for change. And I think if people do more of that, that will very help a lot. Last question. Um, there are so many layered aspects of this book, but you know, as you as you think about people sitting down and reading it, what do you hope is is maybe one thing they're taking away from it? That they don't give up on people who look and think differently, and that they don't give up on democracy in this country. I, 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 you know, 
I'm a black man from West Baltimore. And the most famous journalist from West Baltimore, black journalist, is Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I, I, I love his work. Ta-Nehisi has created opportunities for people like me. But Ta-Nehisi's vision of, of this country is pretty bleak. And um, I tell people, uh, somebody said this before, and I, I remember this quote, this white, this white writer wrote, if you convince most white Americans that racism is inerasable in this country, what are they supposed to do with that? What do you, what do, you do with that? If we're only telling stories that say racism is so entrenched and so embedded that people can't change and the country can't change, how does that help? And I wanted to tell the story to say, no, that's not true. I come from a place in a situation where you would never expect any kind of racial reconciliation. I mean, I had these white relatives who wanted nothing to do with me and we're now a family. And the people who helped me were conservative white Christians. It can change. I've seen people change in ways I never imagined, including myself. So that's what I would want to leave people with, hope that they don't give up, they don't become pessimistic, and they just surrender. And they're like, this is the way it's always going to be. Our guest is John Blake. The book is more than I imagined. You can stay connected with John by visiting johnkblake.com. John, it's been an incredible honor to have time with you. Thank you for Thank you. challenging us to move beyond our ideological and racial divides by being part of transformative relationships. Thank you. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, a five-week study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.